This episode of See Here can only be listened to by Phoenix. Anyone else who tries, dies. <laughs> Most appreciative to have your company. We discuss music-related films, if this is the first time you're listening to us. And if it is, go back to the first four episodes, then come back. We'll still be here waiting. And on the other end of a Skype connection, I have Mr. Bernie Stickwell, Ms. Wendy Freeman, and Ghetto Tim Merrill. Good morning, afternoon, evening, ladies and gents. Hey, friends! Howdy. Hello. Oh, I waited for you, Tim, and then we both did it together. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be yeah. together with all three of you, though. Yeah, 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 we're all doing it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. It feels like a whole month. Oh, hang on, wait, it has been uh, since we like since we last spoke. I I love this time of the month where we all get to talk. Um, I I I really think that we ought to be doing it a lot more, even if we're not recording. But we'd probably that's hate, right. We'd probably hate to speak to each other on the podcast if we did that. So let's make you get keep that, that special well. time of the month where everything really starts to flow. <laughs> Well, I know I'm feeling quite emotional you. about the the whole experience. So, mm-hmm. oh, yes, folks, we're you're listening to Silver and Gold, and oh yeah. no, it's hang on, wait, this is C here, isn't it? Um, so uh, because it's been so long since I've spoken to well most of you anyway, um, let's let's go around in the circle. Who's been doing what? Who wants to go first? <sighs> All right, ladies first. You go first, Wendy. Oh golly, I don't have anything going on. I don't know what I do. You've been doing loads. I've been seeing on Facebook. You've been to conventions and hanging out with people and all kinds of stuff. I got to hang out with Jim Steranko. Yeah. Oh my God, that picture is amazing. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, Jim Steranko is the legendary comic artist who uh, he drew Nick Fury, Agent of Shield in the '60s. It was very, very. He had a very pop art style, like he innovated all this stuff. And now he's best known for being like a very, very eccentric, weird old crank who, uh, who, uh, depending on which story you hear, bitch slapped Bob Kane. Or you know. <laughs> wow, I hope that's true. I hope that's true. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, the severity of what happened is always, you know, up, up questionable. But he wears these ridiculous, amazing, like, like dapper suits. He's always wearing like white on white with turtlenecks and and and. Um, wow. He kind of looks a, like a mafia don, doesn't he? I'm uh, <laughs> I'm trying to go back to my youth, but didn't Steranko? Didn't he also il- uh, illustrate the what was it, Commandy? That was Kirby. No. Uh, Kirby, yeah. No, okay. Kirby did Commandy, but I thought Strangle did some of that too. But never mind, never no, mind. No. no, it's cool. But yeah, yeah. Look up, look up Strangle. It looks like crushing like Bob Evans, you know, Robert Evans, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he's got these giant white teeth. He's always wearing like those those uh you know, shade those shades and doors, you know. Oh, he's just he's just so wonderful, and he's a did tiny he smell man. Of aqua velva. 
uh, he he wanted me. He asked me to take off my clothes for him. It was great. What? Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I need to go grab a drink now. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, the man's in his 80s now. Jeez. I guess if you ask enough people, someone's going to do it, aren't they? So. Oh. Oh, oh that's what that was. <laughs> that wasn't meant as a slight to you, Wendy. I'm sorry. <laughs> he says that to all the girls, I'm sure. Only the right. old men ask me to take off my clothes, all right? <laughs> But yeah, he made me sit down to take a picture with him so he could be taller than me. <laughs> no, he, he, wow. makes, uh, he makes Dio look tall, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> I was going to daddy propose to him. I was going to ask him to be my father, and uh, uh, I did not. That's been creepy. Also, that didn't work out. No, no, I, I, you know, I, I got too nervous to ask him to adopt me, you know, so that didn't work. Also, hmm. I got to hang out with, um, do you remember the comic Hate? I would do yeah, the same. Peter Back. Then it was Peter Back, didn't you? Yes, so yes. I, I got to. Bag. I got to dinner with. I, I still don't know if it's Bag or Baggy. I still don't know. I think it's Bag. Anyway, so I got to have dinner with Peter Bag, and we just hung out and talked about Power Pop the whole night. And he was oh, awesome. Wow. He used to play in a band cool. called the Action Suits. So, so cool. And, what? Uh, yeah. The yeah, Action Suits. I have suits. all four of their seven-inch. Yeah, I remember the yeah the Action Suits because actually I think. They put out a seven inch with one of his comics or something, or I remember him doing something like that, putting out a, there was a, uh, a flexi or was it a flexi or I'm not exactly sure. I, I just remember him putting out vinyl with one of uh, the issues of hate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. he was, he was the coolest thing. Like I totally thought that he was going to be like one of those indie dudes who's uh, not fun to talk to, but he was. Too he cool for school. Yeah, yeah, he was totally. He would have. He would have fit right in with us. He was totally in our wheelhouse. Right he, was, he, he, he always right. did that hilarious. Did you ever see the hilarious uh, animation he did about Murray Wilson? No. Oh yeah, I think you sent me the link to that, didn't you? Yeah. Oh my God, that's hilarious, Wendy. You've got to see that. It's about how they've got kind of like an AA for par- parents who have uh, have famous kids. And how it's like they're trying to deal with the therapy of like you know like and and because Brian fired his father right and and Murray Wilson is like this maniac and the way Peter Bag draws him it's just hilarious right and there was you can find it on YouTube if you type Peter Bag Murray Wilson you know there were, I think there was like five animated episodes of it but it's just hilarious right oh my god that explains oh because uh, one of my friends asked him to draw. You know that famous picture of Brian Wilson where he's just wearing the fire hat? Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> a friend of mine got uh, him to put like a doodle of that, got him, to, got him to draw a version of that that was really, really cute and it was very funny. And then another right. friend of mine saw that and asked him to draw like Brian Wilson in his bathrobe. And then Peter Baggins just drawing like all these sketches of Brian Wilson. <laughs> oh, nice. So that explains that. <laughs> Ah, now I've got to get that image of Brian Wilson in a bathrobe wearing a fire, hel- fire helmet out of my head. Stop it. Um, <laughs> good Lord, thanks Just for that, Wendy. Just look at him with his clothes on and that'll get it out of your head. Yeah, so, good old buddy Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> so, anything else to report from the uh, from the last month, gentlemen and ladies? Uh, well, I speaking of the Beach Boys, actually, I... Uh, I just watched a really incredibly 
terrible but inc fun as hell beach movie from the 80s, from the mid-80s. It's called Surf 2. Have you ever heard of this? No. Well, as long as it was a sequel. <laughs> well, the, the funny part is, is that they actually take a cue from Cosby and like the Leonard Part 6. There's, there's no first film. The first, the first film is the second one. They called it Surf 2, right? It's just, you know. And uh, I'm actually, I actually was uh, watching it because we're doing a piece for a magazine I'm writing for and uh, about beach films, you know, all those tacky beach, you know. And anyways, uh, the funny part about the, the, the film is that, you know, they've got, like, if you're a genre fan, man, like, you know, the film is basically made up of, like, Cleavon Little as the mayor. They've got Ruth Buzzy. Uh, Ron Polillo, Horshack as like, you know, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's the assistant, he's the assistant to the chief of police, Inspector Underpants. And then, uh, they've got, uh, the, the lead guy in the film, Eric Stoltz playing, oh, wow. doing a rip, doing a rip off of, uh, Penn, uh, Jeff Spicoli. And it's got Stoltz, like a really young Eric Stoltz, like, whoa, dude, oh man, <laughs> you gotta catch them waves, man. You know, like. And, and uh, they're going up against Eddie Deason. And do you know? Do you guys know who Eddie Deason is? Not me. I know the name, Eddie, but I couldn't tell you. Eddie Deason looks like a skinny, like Jerry. Lu if you can imagine, if Jerry Lewis as a nutty professor railed a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a combination of like Jerry Lewis as a nutty professor and a stork. You know, like, and he's a, and oh, he's wow. got this really nerdy voice. You know, have you guys ever seen uh, 1941? Yes, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> he's the guy. He's up in the Ferris wheel. That's Eddie Deason. Uh, okay. The really oh, Eddie, yeah, I, yeah, I totally, yeah, I've just looked him up on IMDb. Yeah, I totally yeah, recognize really him. Annoying. He's got that really yeah. annoying voice, right? Yeah. I mean, like, he's the kind of guy that even nerds would kick the shit out of him, right? You know, I mean, but anyways, uh, the, but. Going back to the Beach Boys, what's amazing is this film is like, you know, almost no budget. It, you know, it barely played drive-ins in the 80s, right? Now it's finally achieved cult status. Like the Beverly Cinemas, you know, done a, they did a reunion screening with all the actors and everything and people that were still alive. And uh, I think uh, Austin, the Alamo, did one too. But the soundtrack to this thing is freaking amazing. They've got like everybody from like, you know, They've got uh, the Beach Boys, the Ventures. They got Del Shannon. They got the Stray Cats, Thomas Dolby, uh, the Circle Jerks. Oh, uh, I forget who else, but I mean, but it's amazing for a film that you know, almost like it's like they put ninety percent of the film budget into the soundtrack, just getting the rights, you know. But it's uh, it's fun as hell. Oh, excellent! That sounds great. Yeah, where, 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 where did you see that through? Is that on? Is that on YouTube or? It's out in the ether, yeah. Right, right. It's out, other means, yes, yes. Yeah, it's out uh, in the ether. But, but the funny thing is, is like watching it now, it's like I'm saying, man, this movie is so fucking bad, but I'm compelled. I got to watch it to the end, you know? And that's just the way it was like back in the 80s when we watched stuff like, you know, Hamburger the Movie or Joysticks or <laughs> any any of those kind of films, you know? It was like we knew they were trash, but they were just the perfect, um, you know, it was like a chili cheeseburger at, you know, like 1230 at night when you know you shouldn't eat it because the next day you're going to get the shits, right? But, you know, but you do anyway. Sweet. Going to have to check that yeah. one out. Surf 2, it's called, yeah? Yeah, it's called Surf 2. It was just, oh, man, it's a blast. It's really funny. It's really funny was, because it just so horrendously uh, bad it is. 
I'm just looking up Eddie Deason on IMDb. Uh, in 1985, he was in a Polish vampire in Burbank, and he played, <laughs> yeah. a, character, he played a character called Sphincter. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to say it. It's awesome. And hey, he was in, uh, wow, he was a regular on Punky Brewster as well. Right. And going That's back cool. to the Beatles, Morris. Yes. He was actually one of the leads, and you've seen I Want to Hold Your Hand, right? Actually, I haven't, no. No? No, oh, I man. No. Well, we're gonna have to rectify that, man. We're gonna have to watch that um, for the show. Well, that'll, that'll that be your, that'll, is that your next pick. No, no, I'm just saying <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to put it on the roadmap, you know. Yeah, yeah well, we're, we're we're set for the next few years, I think. <laughs> so, Mr. Stickwell, your 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 um, top three for the week. Well, I think I'm gonna go on a Eddie Deason binge because I can't believe that he's Grease and Grease Two. He's in Zap to the Facts of Life, the TV show. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, stuff. let me get off Eddie Deason there. That's uh, a little creepy. Um, oh, God. Okay, well, I was going to mention, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet or not, but uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Oh, um, yeah. I oh, was man. lucky enough to uh, see it recently, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and, yeah, it's just, you know, uh, I think the world would be a different place if that film had ever gotten made, you know? It the just, world would have been absolutely. a better place if the David yeah. Lynch film hadn't been made, that's for sure. Oh, uh, well, that's, uh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> so what was that, um, Wendy? I said, I don't poo-poo the Lynch version. I enjoy the five-hour version. I can't poo-poo it. <laughs> well, you guys I mean, know the story. The you guys know the story about uh, the Jodo tells about his son trying to drag him to see the Lynch version, and he was really scared to go in because he thought if anybody could do it better than him, it would be Lynch. And then he starts watching it with his eyes, you know, like looking through his fingers, and all of a sudden as the film goes on, he just gets happier and happier and happier because he realizes <laughs> it's a big, vapid piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he talks about he that. Said, in, uh... It's so bad. I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> But it was amazing the uh, the kind of people he had uh, lined up to work on it. Obviously, Mobius, uh, Giger, uh, of course, who's just uh, departed this mortal plane. Um, yeah. Chris yes, Foss, the um, sort of sci-fi paperback uh, painter, author kind of guy. Right. Uh, and I didn't realize that um, he had Pink Floyd and Magma lined up to do the yeah. music. That's just <laughs> unbelievable. Jagger. God. Jagger yeah, yeah, the- yeah. Paradine and all. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if, if it had happened, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we'd probably be sat here uh, in our floating armchairs and, uh, you know, it would just be a completely different world, but it's a tremendous documentary. Yeah. Also, we should give give thanks to our, our, uh, GGTFC cohort, Steven Scarlatta, one of the producers. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, to yeah, get a made about a film that never got made. <laughs> right. Why? And the thing that yeah, I, I just wanted to say quickly, you know, is when you're watching this documentary, it's like, you know, you just get a, a source of such a an outpouring of like, you know, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't even know how to put it to words. It's just, it's just, he has so much brewing inside of this guy. I mean, he's yeah, like, you know, yeah. if you could have harnessed Jodorowsky as an energy source, man, we'd save the fucking planet. I mean, like, you know, you <laughs> like, he's like a nuclear reactor of just imagination. I mean, like, you just get so much inspiration from watching this guy. And he's just like, you know, 
we didn't make the movie. I don't fucking care. We were going to, you know, it's still in my mind. Like, you know, like, and you're just like, oh, yeah, 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 you know. And then when they actually show how many things took a nod from the actual, you know, the books, you know, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, everything from Flash Gordon and right up to Prometheus and everything, you're like, holy shit, man. I mean, you know, he should have got himself a lawyer. They would have made a fuck ton of money. <laughs> I would very right. much like to be on his team of spiritual warriors. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I was going to say the one thing, too, and I mean, I know this isn't a comics podcast, and I don't want to go too far on this, but you can see, I think, that because of this, it really lent his his uh, extension into the world of comics, I think, because he realized that his scope was a lot larger than any budget that he could ever try to procure. And I think that's what really kind of pushed him into working more with Mobius and doing the ankle and son of a gun and meta barons and everything else that came with that. I think that, you know, when he realized that there's no way that Hollywood was going to be able to kind of catch up with him, so to speak, Mm -hmm. it really, I think that's what was the impetus that really got him in the comics. And and thankfully, you know, that's a good thing, you know. Well, as great a filmmaker as he is, I think comics are actually the perfect medium for him. Because you know he can get it all there on paper, and when when you're collaborating with someone like Mobius, I mean, my God, you know, it's just, you know, words can't do it justice, really. So yeah, I think you're, and they you're were, totally they were the money two, there, Tim. They were the yin and the yang because I mean, it's like you know he couldn't think it up fast enough, and Mobius couldn't draw it fast enough. Yeah, right, right, why? I mean, two peas in a pod. Two crazy peas in a pod. Yeah. <laughs> <All> right. <clears throat> what about you, Mister Morris? Well, what have my- you been up to? Well, my highlight of the week was finally getting to uh, tick a Pantheon film uh, uh, off off my list of, of shame. I finally got to watch um, uh, The Wages of Fear for the first time oh. during during the week. I'd recently gone and ordered both that and The Battle of Algiers, um, and uh, yes. still ha- still haven't got round to watching Battle of Algiers, but I did watch Wages of Fear during the week. And when I was out last night at a gig, Max sat back and watched uh, Wages of Fear. And we had a good old natter when I got back last night about it. But absolutely amazing. Loved every second of it. And I mean, I, I was sort of, I, I've been long aware of, uh, you know, how uh, gripping this film was supposed to be. I, you know, kept hearing expressions like, you know, white knuckler sort of thing. But um, I just thought it was an amazing character study as well. And, and the, the tribute to that is that the first, it takes a high, like a whole 50 minutes before they get to the crux of uh, where the story is actually going. But um, really, the film, as as great as the, the the tension-filled moments in the last hour and a half were, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as effective if we hadn't had that first 50 minutes to understand who these characters were and how they change and what their motivations were in you know, from the first half to the second half. So, um, yeah, absolutely a huge highlight of my week. Loved watching that. So, how do you feel about Sorcerer? I haven't got round to that. Uh, a, a, very good oh. mate, a very good mate of mine had, um, uh, he, he said to me uh, some months ago uh, that I think um, Fritz Lang's M, which I watched like a few years ago on his recommendation, and uh, The Wages of Fear are his two favourite films. And um, he said, but promise me you won't watch Sorcerer until you've watched Wages of Fear. And I've kept my promise. I will now... Uh, um, get round to watching Sorcerer, but um, I was listening to Terry Frost's uh, Paleo Cinema a week ago, uh, a couple of episodes back, where he talks about Wages of Fear, 
and he also talks about um, another film called uh, Violent Road, which he says was actually the first remake of uh, The Wages of Fear. That came out in 1958. Everyone goes and says, Our Sorcerer is the American remake to this um, uh, Violent Road. I think he says like a, a, a B-movie remake. You know, it's not in the same league, but it's technically is the first remake of uh, Wages of Fear. So I'd like to uh, track that one down too. Yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but yeah, anyway, that was uh, that was a big highlight. And um, uh, as I was speaking to um, offline before Sticky, I went last night to uh, see a guy called Mick Peeling, and uh, uh, he he was uh, in a band called Stars in the late seventies, uh, originally out of Adelaide, uh, but they they moved to Melbourne because back in those days, you know, band wanted to make it big. They moved to Melbourne or Sydney. They had a couple of really really great albums called Paradise and Land of Stars, which we actually spoke about on the Love That Album. Uh, maybe a couple of years back so it was a real pleasure to see Mick Peeling sort of come out and do those old songs he's been doing his own material for the last whatever 30 years but he's sort of happy to go back and do a, few, a small run of shows of um, that old material and there was a lot of people out there I mean, it really I mean in the grand scheme of things of um, Australian rock from the 70s Mick Peeling and Star's name isn't as big as uh, a lot of other artists who came from the same era but there were still a lot of people like the, who were there last night who had affection for the material and the songwriting is is really a class so uh, and he had a he had a top band um so yeah it was a, it was an absolute joy to see that and i got to catch up with my good friend michael Persh, who'd come from adelaide specifically to see this gig so um had him over and uh it was it was, it was nice to um actually uh, have uh you know someone who i'd met through the podcasting world um uh, you know i mean we, we've met up a couple of times before but it was really nice to have him uh uh, come and stay with us. So I mean, it's it's not my horror hound, but um, well, no, it is my version <laughs> of horror hound, I guess. But it's not like horror hound, but it's my version of horror hound. That's what I meant. To well, say. maybe because you kept your clothes on. I kept my. Oh, oh, what, are you, what are you trying to tell me, Wendy? What, what goes on in horror hound? Butt chugging. <laughs> oh dear. All maybe right. because you didn't, you know, have enema contests. It wasn't Gigi yeah. Allen style. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I'm not so kidding either, are you? So does, Zom, does Zom usually win those contests? Oh well, you know, you would think, you would think, but there's there's a surprise black horse in the you know in the contest, but you you'll, you'll have to tell us off air, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, not allowed to not allowed to really say all that. No, no, no. This oh. is a this is a G-rated podcast, and here we are, 22 minutes into the podcast, and we actually haven't said what is the topic of this episode. <laughs> When we come back from the break, we are going to be discussing a uh, film by Brian De Palma, 1974. Is that right, Tim? Yeah. Phantom, Phantom of the Paradise. So uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what all of you have to say about uh, the film and what you thought, what you felt. So we're going to go to a quick break and we'll come back and uh, discuss a little phantom action from Brian De Palma. We'll be back shortly. Hey, this is Scott of Married With Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's. From The Big Sleep to Big Mama's House. Well, maybe not Big Mama's House. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. Oh. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. Well, it's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff. Yeah, a very wife-husband show. High praise indeed. 
So come find us at marriedwithclickers.libsyn.com. It will save your life. Or maybe just help you kill an hour. In 1919, the first great horror classic, Caligari, then Frankenstein, Dracula, King Kong, and now, the most highly acclaimed horror fantasy of our time, Phantom of the Paradise. They destroyed his face, his voice, and the woman he loved, and he wanted it back. He terrified a city. And no natural force could stop him. Phantom of the Paradise. He's coming soon from 20th Century Fox. Rated PG. And we're back from break. Morris, Wendy, Bernie and Tim. The See Here crew, and we're going to discuss Brian De Palma's 1974 film, The Phantom of the Paradise. Now, Tim, this was your choice, so uh-huh. please give the listening audience out there a bit of a synopsis and your history with this film. Well, I just want to say that from the beginning that, you know, everyone always gives Rocky Horror the love as the definitive midnight movie where I think that actually, in my opinion, there are films that go above and beyond Rocky horror. And, uh, you know, I don't want to lay my cards on the table too soon, but I think that this is one of them. Uh, Phantom of the paradise, basically the memories that I have of this film were basically like my cousin, Mark actually got a hold of the soundtrack of this before I had even seen the film. And that was the first thing that grabbed me. And it was actually the poster. You know, I mean, just the amazing, you know, artwork of the poster with, you know, the Phantom on one side with the knife and the guy, you know, singing on the other side, you know. And then I started, and then I started seeing ads for, I remember seeing ads when I was a kid, like television ads for this. And then we had a chance and we actually saw it at the drive-in. And... That was when I was just like, holy shit, you know, this, you know, I was so young, but it was just, it was just such an eye opener that, you know, music movies, you always thought of, you know, things like even, well, there was Grease and, but I mean, you thought of the sound of music or you thought of these, these you know, singing in the rain and, you know, well, they're, they're great films. They just, you know, weren't the kind of thing that really hooked me. You know, there wasn't anything that just, you know, blasted out like, like a comic book or like something that, that, you know, that just had that appeal. And then you see this and, you know, and the imagery in this film to me was just amazing. And, you know, I, it's, it's basically just, you know, the old Faustian tale revisited, you know, of, you know, the man who sells his soul to the devil and then basically goes through hell to reclaim it. Right. But all, but all done with the bubblegum glam rock beat. So let's, let's give a, like, the quick synopsis we get on uh, IMDb. It says, A disfigured composer sells his soul for the woman he loves so that she will perform his music. However, an evil record tycoon betrays him and steals his music to open his rock palace 
the paradise. That's, yeah, well, you know, it doesn't really convey the mood, but that's, I guess, more or less where we're mm-hmm. headed with, with uh, this film. So I heard what you were saying there about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and that being the comparison probably because of the midnight movie thing. I'll say in a couple of minutes what I think is a better comparison for for, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. But yeah, look, this was my first viewing of of this film. And yes, you're right, it definitely does have all the midnight movie tropes. It's wild. And you also mentioned like the movie poster. And often you see like in in a lot of those 70s movie posters, maybe three or four scenes from a film. And it's supposed to convey, you know, how wild a film is. But there's often a whole lot of like really calm or dull bits. But really this film, the poster really does convey the mood. Even when it's quiet, it's always very, very bizarre. So um, I'll, I'll throw my hat into the ring here that I have never seen Phantom of the Opera in any version. Uh, oh. I've never seen the picture of Dorian Gray. I saw a really awful stage production of Faust, but I, I guess the closest I can say is I've watched Bedazzled, um, and, the, uh, <laughs> and, and you know that that holds up well. But you know we're all familiar with those stories. So before we sort of like throw our hats into the ring as to where we feel about the film, my question to you is: knowing that this film absorbs all these elements, do you think that you need knowledge of those films to enjoy it or diss on it, or can you just take it for what it is? I think you can take it for what it is, but I think it's a it's a nice nod if you do know the, yeah. those source materials. Yes, yes, right. It's kind of funny how you know, like some, like I was saying to Morris, this is you know today. There's a lot of people that say, oh, there's these meta books and meta films and meta this and meta that. It's just like, well, no, there's traditional stories that have, you know, have their roots in in far in the past. And that these tales are are basically faces like everything comes out of that, you know? Yeah, right. Absolutely. But things are reinterpreted in different ways, and it and it doesn't mean that it's meta. It just means you know, it just means that you know people have found new creative ways to really put the spin on old tales, right? Okay, so let's throw our hats into the ring. Uh, you know, uh, our initial thoughts. So, um, Wendy. <laughs> well, let's say all right. Oh. I have to or do you not want to go first? You don't have to go first. Oh, I totally want to go first. So, well, like you, this is the first time viewing for me. And I had avoided it specifically because I hate Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I hate, I hate meatloaf. And I hate, like, I hate the sort of, like, 70s campy over the top. Uh, th- I hate Bohemian Rhapsody. I hate, like, that type of stuff. I, like, it's not. So you wouldn't be invited to hang out in uh, the the Wayne's World Mirthmobile. No, 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 definitely not. But but yeah, so I just I just don't like that type of stuff. And but I was like, well, you know, I do love Paul Williams. I do love the Muppet movie. I like all of his music. You know, that he writes for the Muppets. So maybe maybe I I I'm older now. Maybe I could give this a fair shake. Maybe I can you know do this. But at the end of the day, like I just ah. Uh, oh. <laughs> What are you trying to say? Be specific, Wendy. Well, what, what do you mean? And when she laughs in that way, I think she means to say, I couldn't stand it. I, I didn't, like, none of the songs, I'm not going to be singing any of these songs to myself. Like, I'm just, you know, and oh, God, Phoenix, I thought, fucking horrible. Oh, that scene man. where she was uh, auditioning and uh, dancing yes. up and down the uh, stage. She was kind of graceful and awkward all at the same time, wasn't she? 
All right, I guess so the, more important the, quest, the question I have for you is, I know that there have been a couple of people out there who've gone and suggested that Jessica Harper was a direct influence on Elaine Bennis in that episode <laughs> of Seinfeld. You know the one I'm talking about? True or false? Do you know, now you've said that, I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it was suggested on uh, the um, uh, the Projection Booth podcast. They were interviewing. Oh, okay. uh, they were interviewing Jessica Harper. I- I'm I'm sure I've read it somewhere else as well. But um, yeah, I think uh, it might have been Mike White who'd gone and asked the question. And said, "Oh, so uh, do you think that you're a direct influence on Elaine Bennis?" And and she's, "Oh, I don't think I've seen." That episode or something. Oh, oh, they did really, really well. I think I'm not sure if he was taking the piss out of her or not. And she didn't get it, but well, um, props to her for being uh, kind of fearless in doing it, if nothing else. Well, this is the thing. I mean, in this interview that she had on uh, the projection booth, he asked her, "So, like, what were your origins? What had you done before Phantom of the, of the Paradise?" Because this was her first film, and she had been like, I think, on a Broadway production of Hair, and she trained as a uh, as a dancer. So, I mean, really, you know, you go to dance school, and that's what happened. <laughs> Away. Anyway, sway me, you guys. I, I'm tr- I'm gonna listen to you, and and if you can persuade me, I will I will uh, watch this movie again. But well, all right, well, well I, I actually I'll tell. You, I watched the film twice, and the first time I watched it, I, I've got a note written here. It's a glorious mess. I I could see why people liked it, but just thought overall it was just too over the shop. And then I watched it a second time, and I have to say now I absolutely love it. Unlike unlike yourself, Wendy. I really do dig the songs in there, and I, uh, I mean, like you, my knowledge of, well, I, I guess you said you had more knowledge of Paul Williams, but I mean, I knew him from the songs that he'd written for the Muppet movie, which I thought were fantastic. Right, um, that's what I'm saying. I love, I love all of his Muppet songs. I think he's a great songwriter. And I will say that um, possibly one thing that I know irks people about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and but the same accusation could be made about the Phantom of the Paradise, or in fact any uh, Hollywood film that deals with uh, having a rock soundtrack, is it's not really rock music, but Hollywood approximation of what rock music actually sounds like. And I, I've listened to these songs a couple of times, you know, they're um, in like you know study for the podcast and just to get what I thought about it. That was you know, separate from watching the film. And I thought, you know, I, I love these songs. But, so, you know, the segment where, um, uh, what are they called? So, the Undead, which is the same group. Yeah, The Undeads, yeah. But- There's nothing that's harder to find Someone to lead us, protect us and feed us And help us to make up our minds We need a man that's sophisticated Quiet and strong and well-educated Where to go, what to do Could it be somebody super like you? The undeads, they're, they're singing their song just before Beef comes out to sing someone, this big someone song. Someone like you. Right, yeah. right. And, and they, they do their songs, and that's supposed to be... I mean, I can see that they're channeling their inner Alice Cooper, you know, and that would have been, time-wise, it would have been absolutely perfect. That was, you know, the glam era. But it doesn't sound like a glam song. I like the song, but if that's Hollywood's approximation of glam, then that's, well, you know, 
not quite right. At least well, not in my mind, is, anyway. I was going to say is that the one thing that I do like, like with the music in this film, is that it, it ha there's a real stratification to it, though. Because, I mean, it's like, you know, you get in the beginning where, you know, you've got the Juicy Fruits with the whole doo-wop thing. Yep. And then, you know, and then when you've got Phoenix auditioning and when she's singing herself, you know, you know, you get into that whole kind of almost like Bette Midler, Streisand type of thing that was big in the 70s. And then you yeah. get, you know, Beef and the Undeads where it's almost like Sweet and, you know, and it's almost like uh, Slade, mm. that kind of thing. So it's almost like this this real little stratification that goes on in the, in the film. You know what I mean? Like they cover... Yeah, and I, I agree with you. It's not it's not as authentic as it could be, but I, but again, though, like I say, there's kind of this they they kind of cover different bases with the soundtrack, you know, with the film, which is what I like about it. I, I know I know it sounds a bit like it is a criticism. It's not because I still do love those songs, but right. yeah, uh, and, and really, if you're going to be asking someone to write a rock soundtrack for a film, I mean, Paul well, Williams. Here's something that's kind of interesting too, right? In the beginning with the Juicy Fruits, right? You you know who was who's actually tagged to be the band but it just didn't pan out at the time because they were on tour Sha -na -na. <laughs> we'll remember you forever Eddie. through the sacrifice you made we can't believe the price you paid for Is it oh, really? That, compl that completely makes sense. Yeah. I totally guess that because they totally reminded me of Shannon. So. <laughs> well, well apparently, apparently De Palma went to school with Shannon. Oh, yeah. Greece so, and he had them, he had them pegged, and apparently they were on tour or something, and it didn't work out. And like there was something like a 24-hour thing, I guess, with the film where if the band didn't work out, then they would be able to come in, and it, it went off without a hit, so they didn't need them. But yeah. Well, so do you know if the, uh, the actors who played you know, the, the Juicy Fruits and the Beach Bums and the Undeads, were they actually the singers for that or were they overdubbed? Yeah, they were well, actually uh, uh, Harold Oblong. He was the choreographer. And uh, yeah, like a lot of those guys were actual theater dudes. Oh, wow. That, that did like on stage productions and things. So, I mean, they, you know, they were really familiar with, you know, getting on stage and doing it. And they did. And I mean, you know, what's really funny is the lead singer, Harold Oblong, he's, uh, what, what's kind of funny is going back to television, like you were talking about uh, Seinfeld and that. You're all familiar with the Scum of the Earth episode, WKRP, right? Yes, yes. Well, he, he was the lead singer for the Undeads. He was the guy who basically, hello, we're Scum of the Earth. <laughs> so he was the lead singer for Scum of the Earth, like with the WKRP episode. Like, yeah. Okay. But I mean, you know, there was a rumor going around, you know, that the Undeads were the ones that influenced Kiss, but Kiss actually came before the Undeads, right? 
Mm-hmm. But then, but then, what's kind of funny about it too is that there was a guy named Bobby Steele who played with the Misfits, and he he had a band actually called the Undead, where it was like the whole white face thing, and you know, I mean, like. And even the Misfits, I mean, like, you could see where, you know, they must have seen the film. I mean, it's just, there. there's so many things in this film that uh, other people have taken away from it. Yeah, but I, I get the feeling that I think that, you know, Kiss, I mean, this is 1974, Kiss were around in 1974. I think, you know, the, 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 the makeup was probably coincidental, but, you know, I mean, but that was certainly influenced in the film by the the glam look and the whole makeup thing and the fact that they had these, you know, the white face and the lightning strikes down their faces may have been coincidental. Right. So, Bernie, what did you get out of this? Um, well, I think I, I agree with Wendy um, in that I think the songs, they weren't that memorable. I mean, if you say what you want about Rocky Horror Picture Show, but we could all sing the songs from Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know what I mean? They all stick in your mind. Mm-hmm. But with this, and I'm not dissing Paul Williams, because like you say, the uh, the Muppets uh, movie, uh, Bugsy Malone as well, you know? Oh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't think the songs were strong enough in this. I mean, they were fine, but they weren't, you know, they weren't um, particularly memorable. Uh, having said that, I did, really love the kind of aesthetic of the film the uh the primary colors lots of reds and pinks and um just you know the general look like you were saying morris makeup right. and uh mm. you know the kind of lightning bolts the whole sort of glam rock aesthetic as well and uh i think it is kind of a mess but i think it's an enjoyable mess it's real it's real kind of eye candy and ear candy i guess yeah i uh, like uh like you were saying tim shana and i were kind of uh very well, sorry, the Juicy Fruits had that Shanana vibe. Oh, but they, I thought they, Winslow, they... when he was at the piano, he yep. was a bit Billy Joel. He was kind of like a darker Billy Joel piano man kind of thing going on there. Oh, absolutely. I was not myself last night. Couldn't set things right with apologies or flowers. Out of place is a crying clown who could only frown and the play went on for hours. And as I live my role, I swore I'd sell my soul for one love Who would stand by me and give me back the gift of laughter, yeah One love who would stand by me And after making love we well, I, actually think, I think that's a glorious song. I really love that song that he's playing. Yeah, I love that song, too. My favorite song, that was my favorite musical moment, was his initial version of the Faust theme. I like that. that and you know what really hits me? It's about the film, though, didn't they? Sorry, was it? Well, really, it played over and over hard. throughout. Yeah, it did, yeah. yeah but, but, it, but in different versions, what, though. Yeah, but you say right, you got, that's you, what I was going to say. What hits me hard is that, you know, in the beginning, you see Winslow playing it, you know, just sitting there playing it, you know, not not to anyone. Like he's he's auditioning. Well, he's not auditioning, you know. He's just playing it to himself. But yeah, then yeah. later, when you see him all mangled, I do it. He's got the helmet on with the plug in his throat, and I was not myself last night. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so more it's more poignant, you know, because you know where you know he's still trying to get his music out there even after all the shit he's been through. And then you see where Paul Williams is just trying to boil it all down with all his filters and shit, right? Like trying to basically suck all like the the, you know, the creativity out in and trying to kind of siphon it, you know? And yeah, it's it's more poignant to me. Half asleep, I hear a voice. 
Is it only in my mind Or is it someone calling me Someone I failed and left behind To work it out I let them in All the good guys and the bad guys that I've been All the devils that disturb me I like in this film how Phoenix and Winslow are flawed. I mean, obviously they're the, the hero and the heroine, if you like, and you know, Paul Williams is your bad guy. And, but, you know, both want success and think, you know, at first it's only going to be in their terms. But, you know, Phoenix refuses the casting couch uh, that Swan uses for all the girls who are auditioning. But eventually, you know, she sells out to Swan for uh, the success that, you know, she wants. Uh, and oh, that's more than a couch. So what was that? I said, "Oh, that was more than a couch." No, oh, that <laughs> the was the right. right. And how right. fucking how fucking creepy was it that you know where Swan had actually had the camera, where he's he's you know watching Winslow watching him. Yes, yes. I think like, he, he likes to say. Every, how, how many times did Bill Finley go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> throughout this film. Uh, but I mean, like, it was even great. Him, like, I really loved the way he. Um, I mean, he really hammed it up. He really overplayed it when he was oh, yeah. the Phantom. But that totally worked. That totally fitted. Uh, you know, the whole aesthetic of the film. I thought he was fantastic in it. I I'd only just recently watched uh, the previous Brian De Palma film, Sisters, and I think he had the opportunity there to sort of really play it over the top. But you know, I think in this film is where he really does go over the top. <laughs> He really went for it, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, about the characters or, or, and the actors who play them in the film. So, you know, we, we already gone and discussed Bill Finlay, and I mean, he, he's someone who strikes me as, you know, as we've basically gone and discussed here, is someone who's really having a lot of fun. But uh, the other one, in, the other guy in the film who looks like he's having an absolute ball is Garrett Graham, who's playing as Beef. Right. Um, oh, yeah! Do we give away the Hitchcockian moment? Oh, man. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something that's kind of funny is that uh, during an interview with Garrett Graham, he'd actually said that the role of Beef was supposed to be played by Peter Boyle. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine that? Yeah. And that actually, when Paul Williams came in on the scene, they said, uh, you can play whatever role you want to play. And initially, he was supposed to play Winslow. So... That I couldn't see him at you know four and a half feet tall with a little helmet on with a cape. <laughs> Why not? It worked for Rick Moranis. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it would have looked like. I think you know. Yeah, yeah. But hang on. But I mean, on the other hand, though, we're expected to believe that you know this walking Muppet is. <laughs> You know, he, he's uh, he's worshipped and adored by by gorgeous women, and people wait on his every word. He they don't applaud until he applauds, and really, you know, this is this, this Paul Williams people. So, right. so really, this this film actually this raises the other point that one thing I take from it is it's uh, you know, really about the cult of celebrity. And Absolutely. so com- coming back to you know what you were saying before, Tim, about you know the, the film that this gets compared to, you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as I think I discussed with you during the week, the film I think it's a 
better comparison piece to from the same period is Tommy, because they're both films that have something to say about the cult of celebrity and about... uh, They both wallow in excess to make a point about the, the evils of excess. Uh, and, right. but, but the thing... I love to talk about in excess. Oh, sorry, I, I, I forgot. <laughs> you, 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 love, you worship um, Jim Morrison wannabes who go and hang themselves erotically in <laughs> hotel rooms. I'm not going to get hung you? up on in excess. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just wanted to tease you. Go on. Yeah, go on. Yeah. So anyway, look, I, I, yeah, that's basically what I had to say about that. I think yeah, it's they both make good. Po- but having said that, I hate Tommy the film, not. Not the original Who record, but I hate the film with a passion. Pretty right. much, I guess, like what Wendy hates Rocky Horror Picture Show with. I, I'm, I'm a. I'm not a fan of the movie Tommy either. So you and I are buddies. Oh, we're we're, we're always buddy, even if we but, disagree about things, Wendy. Yes, it's true, but I love the music of Tommy. I love it. I don't know. I feel so conflicted. No, you know it's funny. I mean, every everybody's been um, giving their perspectives on it, but I mean, you know, I have to say, I fucking love this movie. I do, because, like, I've seen this thing over and over, and I've seen this film about, uh, easily about 15 or 16 times since I initially saw it as a teenager, even before a teenager, and it's just that, I don't know, it's like everyone has those comfort films, you know, and mm. and, and it's not even that, it's just that I I get different things from this film every time I see it, I mean, like like I was saying to Morris, you know, the last time I, I sat and watched this, no, actually, the second to last viewing uh, last week, I started watching this again, and I'm thinking Swan could totally be Phil Spector, you know, like just the Come way... Apt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very apt, I think, you know. And the other thing I, I wanted to say, too, is, you know, I honestly believe, and I'm not kidding here, that I think that Dario Argento must have seen this film because, I mean, you know, not only for casting, you know, Jessica Harper with Suspiria, but yep. there's so many nods in this film that are almost like giallo, like total, total I, argentine. I actually, I actually have a note here that, uh, about the giallo feel when, when, uh, when Winslow like was putting on... Beefs in the shower? Well, yeah, well. <laughs> beef. No, but when he first, like after he's... Um, uh, he, he makes his appearance after he's uh, been. Uh, people thought he was drowned in the river, and he comes into the theater, and he. he we get the point of view perspective of him going up right. to the, the, the costume yeah. room, and yeah, that, that yeah. is right. that, that so reminded me of Deep Red. Right, and then there's also the there's also the bit where you know the lightning bolt goes uh, down. I mean, um, the, the set goes down, and you see him go up on the rope. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then yeah. there's and then there's the scenes of like you just see his eye in the mask and you see a bit of his mouth and you know and, and, and the colors and like there's just so many things that I think were really kind of you know uh, clipped and you know from you know from this and Argento really took some nods from De Palma I think that when he think, went on and, and what year was this again Tim seventy four seventy four. Yeah. So, you know, the Giallo cycle had already been going for a while, so I wouldn't right. have been surprised if De Palma had seen some Giallos and, you know, sure, taken something from that, which, right, right. you know, they kind of fed off each other a little bit, maybe. Right. So, but yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Yeah, big time. But I think also, too, yeah. is that, you know, you you also start to see in this film the famous, uh, you know, uh, De Palma split screens. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was great to really, oh, yeah. 
And then there's there there's so many shots in this film that are like there's a scene when you know like the Phantom's running down the hall and it's that 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 hall shot it's just amazing like there's some really really cool solid moments in this film and I mean I think that um that whole sequence that sort of builds towards the uh, the wedding at the end and basically the finale right. of the movie that's just that's all really shot and put together at a real breakneck pace. And you oh, just yeah. really feel caught up in that sort of, you know, exhilaration and excitement and danger. I, th- I think that was the best part of the movie for me. That ending was just tremendous from a technical point and of view, I thought. This whole film was just like a comic book come to life, you know. I mean, it's it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek in camp. And I mean, I think that all the elements that come together, in a way, I think that it's kind of funny. Because here's a question that I propose to you. And Morris, like you were talking about, you know, how the songs really don't seem like they're real rock songs and they seem like the Hollywood version of rock songs. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that was intentionally done to kind of mock the music or do you think it was done to kind of, because they didn't know any better? Um, and they, it, I don't know whether they said we're going to deliberately make the songs sound like this uh, to, to not quite sound like rock songs, but I, I, I think, you know, Hollywood, would have been genuinely fearful of um, of doing something that sounded like the real thing. I mean, if they if they'd been serious about it, they would have gotten in Alice Cooper rather than Paul Williams to write the soundtrack. Having, sure. Having said that, I, you know, once again, I, just, I I think the songs are great for what they are. You know, you, you wouldn't be so like saying, right, well, one of my favourite rock albums of all time is the Phantom of the Paradise soundtrack. No, no. But, but they are. To me, I, I, I could hear what you guys were saying before about, you know, unlike the Rocky Horror Picture Show songs, you don't necessarily sing along with them, but uh, there are melodies that stay in my head, and like that Faust melody, sure. which I think we all agreed on, was um, was uh, you know, a, a great tune in its own right. And what was the strong thing about it is because they use that song in three different versions, you know, where, uh, where uh, Bill Finley is playing it by himself at the piano, which is my favourite one. Uh, then right. uh, the, the Juicy Fruits version which Bill Finley goes and uh, knocks out a security guard in the Sing Sing prison to escape he goes completely mad when he hears it I was not myself last night lost the fight my woody barely running if I had dude I should have beat and on the street a blow like that is gunning I finally lost control version yeah, yeah yeah that that is the beach bump version sorry the the, the beach bump then, version that's the one and then, and then like, there's the version also where uh, phoenix Williams. when he's he's trying to get into uh he's trying to get into swan's estate when he's up on the stairs and she's singing the song yeah right there's that one too right but yeah no so as i said to answer your question i think that um it's not so much that they made a deliberate decision we're going to do something that doesn't quite sound like rock but it's just i don't think they knew any better and that just seems to me to be a um a hollywood trend but you know right. of course like our, our first unofficial episode of see here which was a silver and gold fill-in i mean that film is also guilty of of uh that you know with some of those songs that they 
wrote for the film, but except the, that thing you do, to me, really does sound like a bona fide song that could have been uh, right. written and performed in that era. That, but then again, they, they got Adam Schlesinger of um, of uh, the Fountains of Wayne's for Christ's sake. So you know that's that's why right. that works. It's just that it's just that to me, there's this whole idea in the film that everything is disposable, and that's the main you know the main idea behind Swan is you know he he'll just dismiss everything right, and then the Juicy Fruits come in with their whole retro fifty shtick, and then they're done, mm. and then you know, and then it's kind of like. Even, you know, Phoenix, who he sees as the perfect singer, he says, you know, and he says to his lackey, you know, it really pisses me off. He says, but, but she's perfect. He goes, I know. He goes, and it bothers me when anyone else is perfect except me. Caught up in your wheel and dealing, you've got no time left for simple feeling. I thought I alongside me right so and then he dismisses her and that and then you know and it's like and then when you see beef how ridiculous beef is and then you know and he gets dismissed in in a different way you know what i mean it's like so i mean when you're watching all of it it, it, it's so funny because everybody's trying so hard you know and then and then you know phoenix is sitting up in his ivory tower i mean uh swan sitting up in his ivory tower and he's like next 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 you know that's right when it's he, interesting when for... uh, it's interesting on, you say that because um, my wife bernice watched this with me um and she said <laughs> that um swan basically reminded her of simon cowell mm. we all know yeah. who, who, you know the sure. devil incarnate simon cowell even up to you know going to his high-waisted trousers as well sure sure absolutely but that's just it, it is that it's the, the the idea, you know, this is the thing that I really love about this film, too. One of the, the key, you know, aspects is the idea that, you know, there's those that say that they're they're the epitome of knowledge of art, or they, they can recognize what pure art really is. And meanwhile, they're the primary, you know, conspirators that fuck it up, you know. That I mean, like, you know, it, it, it's like Swan says, you know, I, I, I know art when I see it, but then he's the one that's going to go in there and destroy it. You know, the root of art, what, what, what is truly beautiful and what is truly amazing about music is, you know, he'll go in there and just suck it all out, you know, like right. a vampire and just leave a husk, you know. And, and I mean, and, and that's what I really like about this film is that, you know, I mean, Winslow and Phoenix are both two pure people with with an ability you know with with raw talent and then you've got swan who's basically just a parasite you know he's just a tick that's who's right. just you know he, he he thinks that he's the artist he thinks that he's the great one right because he recognizes things that he likes and then goes to manipulate with i mean they, they say earlier on in the film i think the rod serling and we actually haven't mentioned the rod serling spoken word intro over the the the, yeah. you know, the prologue of the film but he goes and says that you know at one stage he had so many gold records he tried to get them placed at fort knox right 
He brought the Blues to England. He brought Liverpool to America. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, you know, this whole thing, though, I mean, again, it's nothing new that the story, the story of, you know, like, what was her name? Maria, the, the singer in the original Phantom of the Opera. And then, you know, the idea of, you know, the, the, the pure, you know, innocent talent. And then, you know, and then the idea that her talent is, is kind of, you know, soiled or it's kind of, you know, uh, the, the tragic uh, circumstances that surround this talent, you know. And that, that's all this, the, the, the common a star is born type tale that we've had in too many Hollywood movies to mention. I wanted to say that I was going to bring up the Winnipeg story and I, um, and I was going to mention to you guys, have you ever had a, you've heard of a phenomena where a certain film has a specific popularity in a specific city for some weird reason? Yeah. I, always, I always thought that the Blues Brothers was only ever popular in Melbourne. Mm. <laughs> oh no, in Chicago it's very popular. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's it should be. Right. Well, in Winnipeg, Manitoba in the 70s, when this came out, it turned into a huge phenomenon. And I mean, it played for something like 18 straight weeks. And every weekend, people were bringing people to see this. And, it, you know, and only in Winnipeg. And it, it just, it was insane. And then, you know, Harold Oblong, the singer for The Undeads, that song, you know, Someone Like You, it was like the most requested song on the local AM radio station. And they sold over like, you know, 500 copies of the 45 of this in Winnipeg, you know. And then uh, after the 18-week run, Paul Williams actually plays in Winnipeg, I think in the next year in 75, and it's sold out for like, you know, two or three gigs. And then they start screening the film again for I think another two years and it just it just turned into this like phenomenon you know and then actually I think about three or four years ago they had what they called the first Phantom Palooza where they actually had Bill Finley come and Garrett Graham came and uh, you know and sadly Bill Finley passed but then um, the next year they had the second one Jessica Harper actually came and they actually had the guys who played the undeads perform the songs on stage. So, you know, and I don't think they're going to do another Phantom Palooza, but there was only the two years. Initially, the first one was for the fans, and then the second one, everyone who was involved got wind of it. So they all flew in for it. But, but like I said, like this, it, to me, this is what I consider like one of my, one of my key cult films and there's no there's no two ways about it i mean you know this film has legs and i mean as cheesy as it seems and you know as like you say like you know a beautiful mess there's just something about this film to me that it's just like you know an old jean jacket you know that it just, it just it's just comfortable to me and um you know it's well worn there might be some holes in it, but goddamn, if it doesn't make you feel good when you wear it, you know. Well, look, I'm I'm glad I gave it the second view for the show, and now I'm even tempted, based on uh, a post that uh, Eric Reanimator uh, put in the See Here uh, Facebook page. This is coming out, I think, in August on uh, was it the Shout Factory Blu-ray? Blu-ray. So right. I I mean, second time round, I enjoyed it enough to think right, I might actually sort of. Um, uh, get a copy of that when it uh, when it comes out. So yeah, look, I, I think this is a film I'll definitely be coming back to. What I wanted to ask Wendy was because I know you, yes. you said you had your 
um, issues with the film. Where do you stand on De Palma as a director in general? Well, I'm, I love Dress to Kill. I love Body Double. Like, I, there are De Palma films. I mean, Carrie, I, there are De Palma films I really, really enjoy a lot. So, And then, obviously, I think we all know he sort of went off a, a bit. He's done some major clunkers as well. But, I mean, I certainly don't poo-poo De Palma. And, uh, you know, I, I realize I, I should I should watch this movie again. I feel as though maybe I came into it, like, too late in life or so. I don't know. <laughs> I feel maybe if I had seen this as a teenager, maybe I would have liked it. I don't know. But, I no, I, I, was, I was a very, very judgmental teenager. I probably would have hated it more. <laughs> You're a goth, weren't you? Oh God, no! I was a skate punk. Fuck right. that! Goths oh, okay. had to wear black. No. <laughs> I was a goth. I, I bet. It. Yeah, I was in like uh, the plaid skirts with the thermal underwear and the big Doc Martens. You know, the, like oh, that right. look. <laughs> I wore a lot of plaid. You got any photos no. you can post? I have a ton of photos. I have purple hair. I'll totally post you photos all day long. I, I'd punk. love to. I'd love to see a few photos of you as a skate punk. Yeah, you posted a few. Wendy. I'm sure I wanted very... to ask a question to you guys, and I don't mean to cut it off. I'm sorry, but no, for... uh, could you could you see this actually done as a stage play? Oh, absolutely. I'm surprised it hasn't been. I That's say, what I, I was going to say. Um, they've actually had people do. Uh, well, what you might call it, like. Uh, Shadow casting, I think they call it, where they they actually go up and do the parts with the movie. Yeah, like Rocky Horror. Like Rocky, but they've never, I don't think that there's ever been a proper, full-fledged stage production of Phantom of the Paradise, Bernie. And that's why, like, I'm really surprised, because I I think it would be perfect if, you know, if they actually ramped up the songs and made them a bit more gnarly, like today... I think it would be fucking awesome, man. I think get it. I think in 2014 we're probably ready for it. Strangely enough, because um, funnily enough, I know that recent productions of Rocky Horror, at least over here, have gone fairly minimal. I, I, but with with uh, other like non rock and roll related productions, uh, you know, with whatever, you know, King Kong, Wicked. Um, right. Even even singing in the rain, where they actually had rain on stage, have been able to do some incredible things on stage that they probably wouldn't have been able to do back in 1974 if it had been you know, uh, released as a theatrical production back then. But you know, right. all sorts of crazy shit that Winslow Leach does in the film, I think, could now actually be done uh, on right. stage. I'm sorry. I was, also, we we're more accepting of things like. Uh, you know, American Idiots, and, you know, there are more, I mean, obviously there are rock musicals back then, but, but I feel like, uh, I feel like people want to see more of that, that type of thing now. There's so many, uh, uh, you know, sort of jukebox musicals or, or right, you know, right. yeah, everything right. has become, gone back to being on stage now, it seems. Sure, sure. And the one thing I, I was going to say that I, I almost forgot that I wanted to throw in here for the episode was that. This film actually had a gigantic movement in France, right? And I know, I know the way the French are with their Jerry Lewis and everything, but um, I was going to say that there were two French, young Frenchmen who happened to watch this film over 20 times, apparently, and they were very influenced by this keyboardist with his helmet and with his costume, and they would go on to be two famous electronic artists who were known for wearing helmets. <laughs> Daft Punk. Who could that possibly be, I wonder? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. 
But yeah, they they have mentioned this as being a huge influence on them and and their whole visual aesthetic too. Yeah, I can totally see that. Did anybody spot uh, in the? I, I didn't actually spot her in the film, but looking at the credits at the end, Beck's mum is in this. She's one of the dancers. Really. B.B. Hansen, yeah, it's Beck's mother, yeah. yeah. And there was also a lot of people like connected to this film, like uh, Jack Fisk, uh, Sissy oh. Spacek. She's oh, connected right. to this yeah, film yeah. with the costumes. Costume designer, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah, and, yeah, he's yeah. A, and he's a DP on Eraserhead, and he worked with a lot of uh, Lynch films. Oh, yeah, huge, mm-hmm. huge. And then um, a guy that I know very well, Gary Kent. Gary Kent was a uh, you know, production manager on the film, too. And like, there's all kinds of people that went on to do different things. Like, they became, you know, really huge behind-the-scenes people in Hollywood from this, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, it's fun to see people kind of get their start in the business, like with one film, and then you see them actually look back and say, "Man," and you know, and, and the funny thing is too, like you guys say, "Wow, this is like a big, you know, beautiful mess." They probably would have said the same thing, like looking back at you know what they were trying to put together at the time. But I mean, I know you've you've gone and said that in uh, parts of Canada and in, in in France, you know, the film was really loved, and I I suspect it wasn't like a big hit worldwide. But what did uh, film reviewers make of it at the time? I think I think this film really kind of uh, you know went under the radar when it first came out, and I think it was it was something that basically went through word of mouth, you know. But I remember, like, I remember seeing, like, as a kid, seeing uh, ads for this on television, like, in 74. I remember, like, because... Well, I saw the trailer, and the trailer kind of scared me when I was younger, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, rem- I remember seeing the newspaper ads for it, so I- I've certainly been aware of it all my life. But, yeah, it's taken till now. And I- I'm-, I'm certainly glad that you picked it. Yeah, I'll- I'll- I think I will be viewing this again. And-, and, yeah, as you say, you know, flaws, but... I can I can see why you find it comfortable. It just it, it really to me it's a real you know postcard of the seventies. Mm. As as tacky as you know everyone looks back and says oh disco all oh, this all oh, that you know, and I mean and it, and it's so hilarious too where you see like the crowds waiting for uh, after after Beef gets um, he uh, meets his uh, curtain call. <laughs> that uh, every you know, the whole crowd starts grooving, and I mean that's the one funny thing that I think is is hilarious to me about the film that really kind of pulls me out. Truth be told, is you know when when certain things happen in the end, everybody keeps grooving. Well, that's <laughs> that comes down to uh, you know the whole celebrity worship thing. Oh right, right. He's, he's he's killed himself for the benefit of. Of our entertainment, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, Everybody and, joins in, don't they? You know, there's yeah, um, yeah. There's there's one there's one other moment in the film. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say something about the aftermath. There's there's a uh, there, there's an event that takes place during one of the performances, and blood is shed, and there's this guy in the crowd who you know has this blood smeared all across his chest, and he's dancing away. And I just thought Iggy Pop. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. the moment. But- yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what yeah. you're talking about. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it funny though, too, that in the beginning, it there's allusions to it about where when the Juicy Fruits are singing that song about Eddie. Yeah, yeah. That was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was something I was going to say because I I know that like in the last thirty forty years, for, uh, for the for the most part, musicals 
aren't like the old-fashioned musicals where a character bursts into song to as a substitute for dialogue. They, the, the, the songs are more performance-based, and yet just about all the songs in this film do convey something about the story, or, or at least the mood that the character is feeling, regardless, but, but not as a substitute for dialogue. So it's still clever in that way. Right, mm -hmm. like, like Streets of Fire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Type of thing, yeah. But you see, that's, that's a film, Wendy, that's funny. Like, I could, I could see this perfectly as a double build to Streets of Fire. Oh, yeah, I mean, because, I could certainly see that too, yeah. Because they both, they both kind of create their own kind of universes, right? Like, they're, they're, it's like, you know, you just have to, you know, don't question anything. Just fall into it and just watch what's going on, right? It's like, wait a minute, is, is it, what, what time is this? Is it this time? Is it that time? It doesn't matter. Just watch it. And just enjoy it, you know. If you if you can get into the moment, you can get into what you're what you're watching. You know, it, it's a blast. You know, it, very very over the top, but um, I mean, it, it's a product of its time in that regard, but but no less enjoyable for that. I mean, yeah, maybe. I think that's partly why it's I find it so enjoyable because it is a perfect sort of distillation of that that period, that time, right. and that kind of uh, aesthetic. Right. I've said aesthetic about 12 times in this episode, that's, sorry. That's, right. Well, that's, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, too, when you think about it, too, now that you said, like, you know, you know, like, distillation, like, you were talking about the synthesis, like, Bernie, like, of all that. You know, you think about there was that bubblegum movement in the 60s, right? Mm. Like, the fruit yeah, gum company yeah. and, like, all yeah. that stuff, you know? So, I mean, it does, you know, and when... You know, and what's interesting I think too Paul Williams is Williams kind of came out of that, didn't he? Wasn't he? Right, he right, was right. In a few groups in the sixties, and right. it was that that kind of uh, that kind of vibe, I think. But they, I mean, but even when you listen to that shit, like yummy, 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 and stuff like that, you think, what the hell is this, man? Like, you know, who whoever thought this would be popular music? You know, like this is this this is nonsense, right? Mm. But then when you see the juicy fruits, you're thinking the same thing. They were the doo-wop singers from hell, though, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I, just so one more thing. I can't, I, I couldn't get out of my mind Randy Newman for some reason, and now it's hit me why, because I think, well, actually, it's I, hair. well, no, 20 years ago, he actually wrote a rock opera about Faust, and I'm wondering whether it was influenced by this. Hmm. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Oh, but yeah. Well, but um, yeah. Randy Newman instead of Paul Williams. What do you think? Would it have worked? No. Okay. Cool. Roll on thunder, shine on lightning. The days are long and the nights are frightening. Nothing matters anyway, and that's the hell of it. Winter comes and the winds blow colder. Well, some go wiser. You just grew older. Never listened anyway, and that's the hell of it. Good for nothing, bad in bed. Nobody likes you, you better off dead. Goodbye, goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Born defeated, died in vain. Super destructive, you were hooked on pain. And though your music lingers on, all right, so that's our discussion about Phantom of the Paradise. Enjoyable uh, discussion it was. And uh, episode six of uh, See Here podcast. Wendy, it's your choice. What have you got for us? Oh, we're going to have a laugh riot with uh, some Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Oh, oh nice. Dr. <laughs> Steve Brule. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, feel free to shit all over my movie. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. I love that film. Oh, I, I wouldn't do it at all. 
I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm really, really looking forward to it. I know Marshall Crenshaw wrote a song for it, so that's already reason enough for me to. Uh, look oh, forward he to did. Seeing it. Apparently, <laughs> over, the, over the closing credits, yep. And you know, I love me some Marshall Crenshaw, so so that's already a bonus. And I'm a big fan of John C. Riley, so looking forward to this. Um, so guys, thank you very much for our monthly get together discussion. That's a real reason that we do this podcast, just so I can speak to you lovely people every month um and uh those of you out there i hope that you've uh, enjoyed it please feel free to join our facebook page send us an email all the details are there on the facebook page you'll find us uh and uh let us know about a film that you maybe would like us to cover if you want to join us well you know we we only ha we have uh, so many problems with skype dropouts with four we might as well have a fifth wheel uh, somewhere along the way and uh, we'll see you uh, sometime in June for uh, episode 6 where we walk hard oh yeah okay cheers we'll uh, speak to you uh, in June thanks for listening there guys yep. thanks cheers. Right. <laughs>